Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is good to be back, Owen. It is indeed. Today, we're talking about the one half of the the portfolio, which is often neglected on our show, and it shouldn't have taken this long for us to get an expert on to talk about this side of the portfolio, which is so essential to long-term wealth creation. Um, Do you invest in bonds? I do, through ETFs and in my super fund. Okay. And how about gold? Possibly in my super fund, but not directly through ETFs, though I do have some gold jewellery. Okay, cool. Well, today we're going to be talking about some of these asset classes, and we're joined by Chris Baraki, founder of Stockspot. How are you going, Matt? Very well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, we actually had a video of yours shared in our Facebook community before Christmas, um, and everyone was talking about it and saying how good it was. So we thought, well, why not get you on the show to to take us through it and um, talk a bit more about um, these defensive asset classes. Obviously, um, as the founder of Stockspot, it's, you know, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I don't know if this is the right characterization, but the way I think about what you guys do is that what we were talking about is robo advice, but it's actually like uh, structured portfolios. It's to help people get started and stay invested throughout different market environments for the long term. Have I got that correct? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty good characterization. We, we just try and simplify the process for people that don't want to be actively managing their portfolio. And I mean, there's plenty of people out there that want to take a, you know, a lot of involvement in the process. There's also people that, um, you know, just want to make sure their money's invested sensibly and they don't have to pay attention. So, you know, that's really the group that we see using Stockspot. You know, th- th- then they don't have to worry about picking the right assets, the right ETFs, you know, rebalancing, managing tax and all these sorts of things, you know, and, and hopefully they can get a, a great return over the long run. You know, I personally believe, you know, doing it this way can give them a better return than most of the professionals out there. And I think that's really the, yeah, the, the secret source of yeah, automated investing. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. We actually, Owen and I did a episode about the pros and cons of robo-investing uh, last year, which was uh, sparked a lot of discussion because mm. a lot of people hadn't considered particular elements. And so that's, I'll include that in the show notes if people want to learn a bit more about robo-investing. But today we're really wanting to talk about defensive asset classes. That's that part of your super, your portfolio you might not have looked at too much. I mean, even high growth super funds usually have some allocation to defensive asset classes. So Chris, to start us off before we get in too much to the weeds, uh, are you able to outline some of the the main types of um, defensive asset investments that people uh, should know about? Sure. I mean, I think it's pretty important for people to, first of all, work out what what a defensive asset is. And and I think definitions definitely vary in the industry quite widely. Mm. Um, In my mind, and, and, you know, we put in sort of submissions to various you know, government and other um, processes around this because there's a lot of debate in the super industry. But, um, you know, I agree with ASIC's definition of a defensive asset. So if you look on the ASIC Money Smart website or on ASIC's website, they say a defensive asset is um, cash or government bonds. Um, and, and actually, you know, I think that's pretty close to the truth. Like cash is defensive because when the market falls, it holds its value. And then bonds generally do one better and, and, and actually rise in a falling market. Um, you know, that's what makes these assets defensive. You know, gold, I put in the same bucket as cash. Gold is, mm. you know, the ultimate sort of um, original form of cash. Um, I think these days there's a lot of other assets that some people consider as defensive. Um, you know, often they're assets that have 
um, you know, the high income stream and low growth. Um, so it might be, you know, hybrids, um, emerging markets debt, um, you know, other, um, you know, yield type assets. Um, in my mind, then they're, they're not really defensive assets, although they may not give a as high a capital capital growth as you know shares or you know typical growth investments. Um, the reason, in my mind, why they're not defensive assets is that when markets fall, and particularly during you know very bad market episodes like we saw in March 2020 or in the financial crisis, um, these high yield type assets. Um, very much, um, you know, move in the same direction as shares. So they don't provide any level of protection or very little levels of protection. Um, so while they may, you know, not have a high correlation or they may not move in the same direction as shares when markets are doing well, they do move in the same directions when markets are pre- performing poorly. And that's exactly when you need defensive assets in your portfolio. Um, and so in my mind, these aren't defensive assets. And I think there is a lot of confusion out there because people, you know, wrongly think, you um, you know, something with a high yield that doesn't have a lot of growth is defensive. Mm, I think that's a good point because we kind of think of it like um, if it if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it is a defensive asset. But sometimes it's not, right? Like sometimes even though the returns might be be low, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a safe investment. Um, and so that's that's a really good point you you draw there, mate. Um, I guess the the number one thing on the minds of a lot of our our listeners and our investors that that follow us is that sometimes they think, well, because I'm a young, you know, I'm going to invest for the next 60 years, I'm a high growth investor, all these things. They think, oh, well, I don't need to really worry about the portfolio construction. I don't really need to worry about defensive assets. Um, even Warren Buffett, you know, often says that even though he's a big fan of index funds, and he's said that quite a few times, um, he has said for he, himself that he would be 100% invested in shares if he could. What do you what do you say to younger people that, in particular, or people that think that they're high growth investors? Like, should they have defensive assets in their portfolio? I mean, it's a good point, and I think it's it's a you know a question we often get from our younger clients as well is why can't I just be entirely in growth assets? You mm. know, certainly over a hundred years, like growth assets have done better than defensive assets. So naturally, you know, anyone that wants to optimize, maximize their returns, you know, will want more of that in their portfolio mm. rather than the thing that hasn't done well. Um, I mean, going back to your point about Buffett, although, yeah, I mean, he, he sort of may think that equities is great and certainly in his Berkshire Hathaway portfolio, it's, it's an equities portfolio. I think he's also said of, of his estate that he'd put 90% in an S&P 500 index fund and 10% in a bond index fund, mm. government bond index yep. fund. And so, and that that estate of his basically has an indefinite timeline. It's a perpetual sort of investment. Um, you know, which I think is is probably the right sort of thinking. If you had an unlimited time horizon, um, you know, probably a, a 90-10 sort of split between growth and defensive assets makes sense. Um, but then it goes to, you know, why would you have any defensive assets, you know, mm-hmm. if your time frame is 100 years or, you know, most um, listeners is probably less than that. It might be 10, 20, 30, 50 years. You know, it, it, there's really three reasons that, um, you know, that I think the defensive assets still have a place in a portfolio. So first... Um, although you know, might have an intention of investing for a certain amount of time, people's circumstances do change. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we saw this in March 2020 when you know, markets collapsed, you know, there was a, a global pandemic, people lost their jobs, you know, people had the opportunity to release their super early. Um, without any defensive assets in your portfolio, you're basically forced to you know, sell um, growth assets at very distressed values in a, you know, in a scenario where you need money unexpectedly. And whether it's with your discretionary savings or super or any other sort of long-term investment, 
although it's unlikely to happen, um, you know, it does happen. And, and March 2020 was a perfect example. You know, those with defensive assets, you know, were in a better position because they could be selling more of the defensive assets than the growth assets when they needed that capital. So that would be one. Um, two, I think just from a psychological perspective, and, and we see it with our clients, you know, absolutely, is defensive assets just keep you confidently invested when markets are volatile. Um, as much as, you know, I think when clients of ours say when they sign up that they are very comfortable with risk, you know, what we notice is particularly with people that don't have, um, you know, generations or decades worth of experience is that, you know, the first one or two market corrections that they have to uh, weather, you know, they, it's pretty nerve wracking experience. Like our, I see it at the moment, our market's only down, um, you know, 5% or so at the, or 5 or 7% from its highs. The US market's down 12%. You know, there's a lot of nervous people out there at the moment. Um, and, and what I think keeps a lot of those people more confident, and, and particularly on our clients, is that there are assets in their portfolio that have risen over that time period. Um, you know, gold at the moment's up 7% in 2022, you know, whereas these other asset classes are down. And so it provides a level of cushion in people's portfolios and means that they're not they're not suffering from the, from the full losses of the market. Um, it's not... I don't think it's, um, you know, it's not as obvious now. It was really obvious um, in March 2020 when share markets, you know, had fallen something like 35 or 38% from their highs. You know, if you're entirely in shares, that was a, a pretty, you know, a, a pretty heart-wrenching um, experience. And a lot of people that were in risky shares were down 50% plus. You know, simply by having some defensive assets in your portfolio, you could really um, curtail those losses. So, you know, as an example, our, our most risky portfolio fell by about 50% of the market's falls and a more conservative portfolio might only fall by 20% of the market falls. Um, now, you know, it, it's, it's easy to sort of think that when the market's down 50%, you, you'll be fine, but it's difficult. It's really hard to have that conversation mm. with your partner. It's hard to think about it yourself. It's, it's difficult for people to do. And, and I think defensive assets provide that sort of ballast in your portfolio to, to keep you um, invested. Um, I mean, and then the last reason I'd say is that even though over very, very long periods of time, like 100 years, defensive assets, you know, like bonds and cash have done worse, it's not always the case over shorter timeframes. And I'm not talking like a one-year timeframe, you know, over 20 years in Japan, for instance, government bonds did much better than shares. And so there are certainly periods in history um, quite long periods in history where defensive assets can actually do better um, and be, um, you know, and, and be a stabilizer in some in your portfolio. So, um, you know, unless your time frame is 100 years, it, it's certainly possible that over your investment time horizon of 5, 10, 15 years, um, something like gold or government bonds might do better than shares. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. They think that as long as you're investing for, you know, at least 12 months or two years, shares will definitely do better. It's it's simply not the case. Mm. Mm. I think that's really interesting because we often set out to be long-term investors, but so many things just pop up in life. You might have to care for someone. Even in March 2020, it, that market fall was also accompanied by a lot of redundancies and job loss. And so these things often go hand in hand. It's not like you've got everything else going for you, plus there's a market crash at the same time. Often multiple events are happening at the same time. And I guess just from personal experience, when I, in March 2020, um, I did have an ETF portfolio with defensive assets and a high growth super fund, but that did have some exposure to defensive assets. But then I also had a shares only portfolio. And so just, it did smooth out the ride a lot more having defensive asset classes. It wasn't as dramatic of a swing. And I think 
um, just psychologically, it does help um, not seeing your super fund go down 50% um, because looking at the share portfolio, it was a lot more dramatic that fall in March 2020. And I think, um, Kate, there, like your point is around the diversification. I think the, mm. the, the line is that you can't, if you're well diversified, you can't do, you won't do, your portfolio won't do better than your best investment and it won't do as bad as your worst investment. It'll be somewhere in between that. And so, you know, we're talking about spreading the risk here over investment classes. Um, Chris, one of the, the questions we get asked a lot when we start talking defensive assets is everyone's like, okay, I've got, I know bonds and gold defensive, sure, but how much should I have? Like what's what what's the what is there any rule of thumb or are there how do you go about thinking about that for for each individual in, investor? I mean that that's really a question for um you know that 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 um is driven by a few main effect factors I'd say Owen. So first of all, your investment time horizon. So we've already sort of talked mm-hmm. about that. The longer you are planning to invest, even though we know that it doesn't always end up that way, the more capacity you have to have more growth assets in your portfolio. It's it's as simple as that. You know, our advice to clients is if you're investing for, um, if you're planning to invest, let's say for six months or a year, there's really no place for growth investments in your portfolio because your chance of making a positive return over that time period is barely over 50-50. You know, it might be 60-40. So, you know, it's it's no better really than flipping a coin. And, and in my mind, that's speculation. It's not investing. So the way we think about it from a timeframe perspective is, you know, what is the asset allocation? Um, that, you know, based on some level of assumptions is going to give you a very high probability of, of a positive return over that period. And that really drives what percentage should be in those different asset classes. Um, then there's obviously the overlay of all what's your risk capacity, because um, in addition to knowing, you know, what should be in there theoretically, you know, you want to be confident that, you know, in a drawdown scenario, you'll still stay invested to be able to enjoy the, you know, the positive returns after that time horizon. Um, and it's a conversation, you know, I see um, our, our client care team have with our clients whenever markets fall. You know, clients sometimes get nervous and say, look, my, you know, markets are down. Um, you, know, I, you know, I've lost, you know, 2 or 3%, let's say, in the last six months. And, and we always bring it back to what's your time horizon? And they will say, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm investing for seven years to buy a house or I'm investing for 20 years for my super. And so, you know, we iterate that, you know, based on that time horizon, your strategy is correct and and no one, you know, can accurately and, and consistently pick when markets are going to be going down 2% or up 3%. You know, that's just kind of the noise around the long-term trend and, and no one can pick the noise. And so you might as well just focus on the long-term trend and, and make sure you've got the right mix for your um, time horizon. So time horizon and risk capacity, you know, are really the two that are most important. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, rule of thumb, I would say, is if you've got an infinite time horizon, um, like Warren Buffett does for his estate, I think, you know, his his um, estimate of 90-10, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, for anything less than that, and, and most people's are a lot less than that, I actually think people don't have enough defensive assets generally in, in their portfolios. Um, you know, super funds are a little bit of an anomaly because the time horizon for someone in their 20s or 30s is quite long. It might be 40 years or so. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of people investing their discretionary savings for some sort of goal, you know, saving up for a wedding or a holiday or, or just, you know, saving up to buy a house one day, you know, your time horizon might be five years or seven years or so. And, and for that sort of time horizon, um, you know, for our clients, um, at least, you know, we recommend at least a 20% allocation to defensive assets. And our view is it doesn't really harm your returns too much, but it adds a huge 
um, improvement in the quality of your returns. And by quality of returns, I mean how much downside you have to experience. And I guess on the topic of downside, I, it's probably important to differentiate that um, bonds and hybrids and gold are not the same as cash in the bank account. And there is risks involved as well. I, I mean, I saw a product recently that was pretty much advertising bonds as a savings account. And I thought that was probably quite misleading because people might put their money in there thinking that it was capital guaranteed and it's not. Do you, um, do you sort of have it? Do you get questions from clients often about whether they should put their short-term savings in bonds? Yeah, it's a a great point and I agree with you. Um, Certainly bonds isn't a a short-term saving instrument either. So I I wouldn't recommend if someone has like a one-year time horizon to put it in bonds rather than cash. And I think, you know, people do make that mistake as well as they're, you know, people are desperate in this day and age to earn a better return than what they get in the bank. You know, you can get your, you know, whatever it is now, 0.1% in the bank. You know, you might get lucky in a high interest account getting a little bit more than that. You know, you can get a term deposit, maybe get a little bit more than that. Um, but above that, you, you're always taking kind of risk. It's just, you know, it's just the way things work. There's no such thing as a free a free ride, a free lunch. And, and if anyone's promising you a higher return than, a you know, a term deposit in a, you know, Commonwealth Bank account, then you are taking risk. And, and that risk could be through, um, you know, through different sort of factors. It could be counterparty risk. You know, you could be um, lending your money to a less safe bank. Um, you could be, you know, investing it in some sort of security that varies in value, like you say, a bond. Um, and, and it's something you ha- I think people always need reminding. And, and, and I see sort of the same advertisements as you. I, I got very scared a few years ago when there was a lot of advertisements out there for, um, you know, a, 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 some other businesses that have since gone defunct advertising sort of stable, um, you know, savings-like returns. Um, I think nothing should be able to advertise itself like savings-like unless it's a bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's a risky investment. Um, so bonds aren't a savings tool, but what they do provide is um, generally through the cycle, a le- level of stability in a portfolio. Um, now, what's interesting is at the moment, we're not really seeing that um, that counterbalance you know, happening as well as it has in the past. Um, with interest rates basically at, at zero in most of the developed world, you know, there's little capacity to further reduce interest rates to basically basically absorb economic shocks. And, and also the, you know, the emergence of inflation as a risk has actually meant that bonds have actually performed quite poorly as well over the last few months. So since the start of the year where share markets around the world have fallen, you know, in, in previous crises, you generally see bonds rise in value. But because a large part of this current um, you know, concern is around inflation, bonds have fallen as well. So, you know, I think it's another important point is that um, different defensive assets um, basically defend you against different scenarios. So government bonds perform really well in a period of, you know, low or poor growth as well as low inflation. And we saw, a, you know, we saw that for a lot of the early 2000s or, or mid-2010s. Um, um, but in a, in a period of low growth and high inflation, Bonds aren't um, likely to provide that level of protection. And that's where assets like gold historically have done a lot better. Um, So, uh, yeah, the point I guess I'm making is that not all defensive assets protect against all different scenarios. And if you pick a defensive asset that doesn't protect against the current scenario, it may not be as as defensive as you expect. Mm. Chris, that one which you bring up, which is gold, is quite controversial amongst a lot of investors. Like some investors say, you know, it's... It's great. Historically, it's performed really well. Others say, you know, it's 
you probably just better off having bonds or some other type of instrument in there or cash. Um, but you made a good point there about the, the certain environments. We, we spoke to Kanish Chug of ETF Securities not long ago about the, the gold ETF as well. Um, so what would be your, I guess, pitch for people to have uh, gold in their portfolio? And I guess an extension of that is like, maybe if you just take Kate and I as an example, like I'm around 30, Kate's a bit younger. How much gold should we have in a portfolio ideally? Well, yeah. First of all, in your personal circumstances, I'm not going <laughs> and I'm sure you've got that disclaimer. No, no personal in your, in your advice here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just a hypothetical example. But hypothetically, <laughs> I mean, so in our, to give you an example, in our client portfolios, we recommend around 15%. Um, and, okay. and, and like you've mentioned, you know, um, for some asset allocators out there or some investors, that might seem controversial because, mm. you know, gold definitely is something that, um, you know, tends to, um, you know, create a, a bit of a dichotomy of views out there. Mm. Um, I mean, there's, it, it's, I, I think at the moment it's quite obvious why gold is a valuable defensive asset is, is that, you know, we've seen a long period where bonds and gold, uh, bonds and shares have moved nicely in opposite directions. And, and in the last few crises, you know, whether it was the financial crisis or the, you know, COVID market crisis, bonds actually insulated portfolios quite well. But now central banks around the world have printed a ton of money. Interest rates are sitting at zero. Um, mm. There's very little um, leeway left for them to continue to, um, you know, push rates lower. And pushing rates lower is the mechanism that helps to drive bond values up. Um, and we're in also a world where real interest rates, so yeah, interest rates after inflation is accounted for, are very negative in most developed markets. Um, which isn't a, a good world for bonds. Um, so, I mean, my pitch for you guys of why I think um, gold is something you should have in your portfolio is, is that, I mean, one, it's a great diversifier. So it has a, you know, of all assets, particularly in very negative market scenarios, it has a very low correlation or negative correlation with a lot of the growth assets you, you probably have in your portfolios. Um, and yeah, it's definitely more evident during you know, what's known as left tail market events. So big unexpected events that lead to, you know, big market crashes. In, in those events, often assets like, um, you know, even bonds um, and certainly hybrids and other high yield investments aren't going to perform very well. So they're not going to provide much protection. Um, yeah, two is it as an insurance policy. So, you know, most of your assets are going to be domiciled probably in Aussie dollars. Or I'm sure you've got some other global ETFs and investments as well. Um, but something that is a, always a risk when you've got assets domiciled in a currency is, is currency devaluation. Um, and it happens when whatever currency your assets are, are, are domiciled in um, loses, lose their purchasing power over time because of, um, you know, government or monetary policy. Um, you know, gold historically is a good way of preserving the real value of your wealth over time. Um, and, and then third, um, and this is the one that's probably most obvious is, at the moment is, um, gold is shown to be a very good geopolitical safe haven. So during times of political uncertainty, um, you know, gold doesn't have a yield. It's not going to give you a dividend or some sort of return, but it's likely to give you a good capital return during those sorts of periods. Um, and there are periods in time, um, and, and I sort of would go back to mid-1970s to early 1980s, um, as an example of, of periods in time where gold um, does very, very well. Um, it, it returned thousands of percent over that period in time, while bonds and shares both did poorly. Um, and, and I'm not saying that's, you know, definitely going to happen in the future, mm -hmm, but, sure. um, you know, I think anyone investing 
um, should be humble enough to recognize that there are all sorts of different scenarios out there that can happen. And you want to be comfortable that your portfolio can withstand those different scenarios. Um, yeah, gold in my mind is an insurance policy. It, it's insuring against all those scenarios. You've, you've got your fingers crossed hoping they don't happen. And, you know, maybe you're even predicting they won't happen, but just accepting that it's a possibility, um, you know, is the reason why gold, you know, is something that you should have in there. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned gold allocation around 15%. Is that in your high growth portfolio? In our high growth portfolio as well. So yeah, our allocation is consistent across the different asset classes. And actually, um, you know, the the modeling we use suggests that it could even be higher than that. Um, Gold provides such a good, um, you know, improvement in the quality of returns in a portfolio um, that, um, yeah, I think it's easily justifiable. Um, To me, it's actually good to see that very few asset allocators have actually made this decision because, Mm. you know, something that always worries me in markets is when everyone's done the same thing. That always makes me think, shit, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe, um, you know, maybe everyone already thinks this. But, you know, in the world, there's, um, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars in in basically government debt um, and and only about, I think it's um, eight or ten trillion dollars in gold. So gold relative to everything else out there is still quite small. Um, most, most asset allocators and investors don't have much of an allocation. Um, Kate, you mentioned your super fund. I mean, there are some super funds in Australia that have a very tiny allocation to gold, but generally it's like one or 2%. Um, I could certainly see a world over a period of time, and, and I'm not sure when it will happen, but where um, asset allocators, you know, are basically forced to increase that allocation. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if that followed a period of inflation where bonds didn't provide the returns or the protection that um, people expected. That's really interesting. And given it used to be a lot more difficult, well, pre-ETFs and everything, to mm. add things like bonds and gold to your portfolio, how do if people do want an allocation to um, these defensive asset classes in their portfolio, whether that's ETFs or just direct investing, how do they do that? Well, there's lots of different options. So one is um, keep buying lots more necklaces. You can go to the jewelry <laughs> store and continue to um, ramp up your supplies. Yeah, just got to have a good. <laughs> Not sure how that one will suit the family budget, but um, mm. yeah, I mean, you can buy physical gold, and I think in some countries like India and China, it's quite popular to buy gold through jewelry. Um, you know, less popular in Australia. You can also buy it through coins and. And, um, you know, there's a few coin stores. There's one across from the road from us in Sydney um, that sells beautiful, you know, um, coins from the mint or from other mints around the world. Um, that's not a bad way in small quantities. And there's actually, you know, you don't have to pay GST, for instance, um, if you buy um, gold in that format. Um, the problem with buying physical is obviously storage and safety. You know, unless you're really confident that um, you've got a safe place to keep this stuff. Um, there's always a risk that it disappears, gets stolen, you lose it. Um, and that's why, um, you know, buying something through a, you know, stock exchange, is, it seems these days to be more popular and it's a safe way to do it. So then you've got a decision, you know, should I buy gold mining companies? And I know you mentioned Buffett before, like it's something I, I know Buffett did a couple of years ago as he, he made his first um, investment into a gold mining company. He liked that because it's a company that generates cash flows. He could measure the dividends. He could actually kind of, uh, you know, feel comfortable that, that there was a business that was um, valuable. Um, you know, one of the challenges with miners is that miners are exposed to a lot of other factors other than the price, you know, margins, hedging, um, their own costs. Um, there's all sorts of things that are out of, the, you know, out of your control that actually may lead to a particular miner performing quite differently to the underlying metal. 
Um, generally, over the long run, the miners will do better than gold in, in theory if they're running their business as well and, and they're, you know, and they're managing things as well. But it's actually not what we've seen over the last 10 years. The miners have drastically underperformed the physical. Um, which is not the reason why I think physical is more valuable. Certainly from a portfolio diversification perspective is why we prefer just buying physical gold in an ETF format. Um, so the benefits of that structure is, although you don't physically take possession of the gold, the gold is there. It, it's sitting um, in a vault. You know, in, in the example of the one that we use, the ETF securities gold ETF, G-O-L-D, it sits in a, in a vault in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's physically backed. You don't have counterparty risk um, with a bank where they might default or they might not, um, you know, pay out. Um, but it's it's stored in a efficient way, and you're very closely getting, um, you know, a return that reflects the change in gold price over time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's all different options. I think the purest option, if you're wanting a defensive asset, is gold um, physical through an ETF. Um, gold miners, I, I think. You know, in some in some worlds, acts more like a growth asset. You know, over the last ten years, it definitely hasn't been a defensive asset. But there will be probably a time in the cycle where gold shares do very well as well, um, because you know they'll benefit from over the last ten years a lot of um, restructuring of their businesses and rationalising costs, as well as benefiting at some point from a, a rising price. Absolutely. Now, Chris, if someone asks you in the elevator if your 60-second pitch on defensive assets, just to summarize everything we've covered today, because <laughs> there's been a, a lot, um, what would what would it be? Uh, I'd, I'd go back to one of my favorite um, you know, quotes from um, the behavioral psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who said, What you see is all there is. And I think with investors, there's a temptation to think they know everything and that, you know, that they can predict the future and they have all the information that everyone else has. Something I've learned investing is that, you know, really what you know is a, a, a drop in the ocean compared to all the information out there that's leading prices to go up and down. And so even if your thesis is absolutely right on a stock that you love or a sector that you like, you know, you could get your timing wrong or, you know, it could already be, you know, at the top of everyone else's, you know, love list. Um, and, and sadly, there are so many examples of, you know, shares or sectors that um, fall a long way. So even over the last year, you know, all these meme stocks and and a lot of these work from home stocks and cryptocurrencies, they've all fallen 80 or so percent from their highs. Um, so defensive assets are a, a great way of um, investing in a humble way. It's invest, um, investing in a way that you're basically admitting, look, I don't know what the future is going to hold precisely. Um, I think I'll be right, but if I'm not, at least mm-hmm. I'm going to survive. And so mm-hmm. I think that's that's why defensive assets are so appealing to me because I think you know, it pays over the long run to be humble with your investing and defensive assets are a great way of being that. That's a, that's a wonderful summary, mate. I like the, the Kahneman quote as well. Fantastic. So Chris, I know our listeners can get in contact with you and the team by um, the StockSpot website. Uh, they can see the portfolios there, the different strategies on offer. Um, is that the place, best place for them to go? Yeah, sure. I mean, you mentioned um, our YouTube, so I'm doing some short videos as well. Yes, if you are. interested in, in different investing topics, that's also a place where you can go to yeah, see some different views. Um, but yeah, otherwise, the StockSpot website is, is probably the right spot. Cool. And we'll include links in the show notes. So um, they'll have all of that there handy. Uh, Kate, this is a bit of fun talking defensive assets. Chris actually made it lively and used some really <laughs> good examples. So, mate, thanks for thanks for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Hopefully the listeners won't need to rely on these defensive assets over the next <laughs> while, but uh, 
yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, wonderful. And Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.